Welcome to a game of two laughs. It's been another action-packed week with Leicester and West Ham stunning Manchester City and Wolves respectively, while Chelsea's defensive issues were exposed by West Brom and the handball law cost Spurs two points against Newcastle. There's never a dull moment in the Premier League. Right, so Ollie, obviously at the weekend, Manchester City got a good thrashing by Leicester, 5-2 at home. Uh, what did you make of that? Yeah, it was a crazy game. I think obviously quite an unexpected result. Um, obviously on this very podcast we've sat here and kind of talked about you know before the season started and even after the first game that you know it looked like Man City were were ready to challenge again and then yeah this looked like Man City of last season all over again you know arguably even worse although obviously a couple of penalties involved this time Uh, but yeah 5-2 loss that's Guardiola's worst uh, defeat as a manager in terms of goals conceded um, in, his, in his entire career and, and yeah just something that I don't think anyone was really expecting but it just goes to show that um, you know despite looking a lot stronger after after the restart um, at the end of last season you know that those those defensive um, issues are obviously still there you know when when they when they've not got the full defence out it's just not good enough um, and you know despite the you know, they've obviously signed Aki. Um, but, yeah, their reliance on Laporte is obviously far too strong. Um, you know, they're obviously signing a, a new centre-back, Diaz, this week, who, you know, I, I haven't seen a lot of him play, but, um, you know, the, for 65 million and, and the way that I think, you know, some of the pundits that have seen him play are talking about him, you know, he, he'll be quite a leader in that defence, and I think that's clearly what they need. Um, but as well as that, not just the back four, I think what was key is that as soon as he took Fernandinho off to put another attacker on further up the pitch, that's when he started to go from, you know, not very good to a lot, lot worse. Um, and it was just easy pickings for Leicester from that moment onwards. Uh, but yeah, what, what did you, what did you make of it? Yeah, I think, <clears throat> I think it was one of those, it, if a shock was going to happen to City outside of the the traditional top six, it probably, I guess, you would expect Leicester to be that team. Obviously, they were pushing for the Champions League last season. You've kind of got that impression that you know that they they, they are a top top side, and that if they could, you know, cause City an upset. But the fact that they did it and it was five two was like obviously a, a big shock. And obviously, City are a top heavy. They're very good in the attacking department, but they've been <coughs> left short at the back. Apart from in goal, obviously, Edison's a top goalkeeper but they need that that need them reinforcements um yeah looking at Leicester are a really top, top team and I don't know whether City took them lightly or they won't expect so given how they've been doing under Brendan Rodgers and obviously it wasn't all that long ago that they put won the Premier League title so I don't know if there was just a kind of an expectation that they were going to do it um but it kind of it just kind of makes that point like obviously we both think we both said that City were our favourites to win the title as much as I want to see Liverpool win it. I kind of put them them ahead of it, and it, I kind of that, this game sort of exposes City a bit. And I'm, I suddenly think, actually, would I've been better to stick with Liverpool? You know, I support them. I should have maybe stuck with them because then you went and would go and watch the game against Arsenal, and they just they just look like two different classes of team at the moment. Um, Manchester oh, bollocks. We're gonna have to cut this bit out because my watch is distracting me right the way through that. I've been fucking. It's been buzzing away. Right, we have to cut that little bit out. Right, let me refocus. Fuck. What was I gonna say next? I, I was gonna say something. Um. 
Yeah, so for Manchester City, I feel like it, I think like it's a, a hard thing for them. Obviously, you talk about Liverpool needed to uh, like bolster their options in, in the trial. Oh, fuck, now I fucked it. I fucked it. I've completely, I was trying to stumble my way through and catch up with what I was trying to say. My fucking phone hasn't bleeped at all. And it's oh, fucking hell. Right. Chucking it across the other side of the bed. Oh, fuck. What was the point I was going to make? Um, I don't think it would fucking know anymore. Um, uh, what was I going to say? So, um, no. <laughs> um, fuck me. I was trying to find a way of firing it back because I, that was what I was trying to do, but I can't remember what I was going to say. Um, that's it. Yeah, so do you think that Manchester City losing 5-2, does that change your opinion at all? Because I know for me that like now I'm I'm kind of like, I'm going to stick with City because that's my prediction at the beginning of the season. But I'm kind of, I'm definitely hoping I'm wrong. Um, but yeah, after that game, what do you think? Has that changed your thoughts at all? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, it, it, uh, yeah, it's, you know, we're a couple of games in uh, and I don't think that I want to necessarily change my prediction just yet, but it does kind of, like you say, the game against Arsenal for Liverpool as well really does put into perspective the fact that we are talking about, you know, that that's, that's four of the top, you know, sort of six or seven playing against each other there. Um, and for Liverpool to come out so strongly on top of Arsenal and for Man City to lose so badly to Leicester does, um, yeah, definitely um, makes you question whether City can actually come back and do it. You know, that's already points dropped. And, you know, as as with last year, I think it was eight games in last year, they were eight points behind and, they, you know, they just ended up falling further and further back. You know, never really recovered from from that poor start and yeah they need to do something obviously signing a new centre-back is obviously one one way to do it but you know I think like Gary Neville pointed out in commentary during the game that you know Guardiola's team's defence starts in attack you know it's it's the high press you know it's it's as soon as you've lost the ball it's winning it back you know within three to five seconds you know and, and really putting the pressure on and it just didn't look like the players wanted to do that you know they you could see them they were sluggish on the press they weren't at it you know not like they were in the first half um, the weekend before where you know they, they looked like the kind of team that could go and win the Premier League and I don't, I don't know what it was they just didn't seem up to it and you know there was Jamie Vardy to, to pounce on any chance that he got whether it be a penalty or or a cheeky flick at the front post you know um, but I mean there's another part of it as well which for me is that Guardiola's teams have always kind of been susceptible to the counter-attacking style of play you know going back to when he was at Barcelona and that, that was, those were the kind of tactics that you know, Real Madrid even would deploy against them. You know, they wouldn't try and outplay them because you just weren't going to. Um, same with Bayern Munich as well, you know, heavy possession, but, you know, sometimes got themselves caught too far up the field and they'd get counter-attacked on. And Leicester are a brilliant counter-attacking team. You know, Jamie Vardy, even in, even at his age now, he's still got incredible pace. And, you know, Harvey Barnes as well, 
um, down that left hand side. Like he had acres of space for, for most of the game, and the penalties they gave away as well were just needless. Um, you know, it, it just you've got to trust the keeper a little bit. I think Neville said that on commentary as well. Like Edison's one of the best keepers in the world. You know. Yeah, he might not save it, but he's probably got a better chance of saving a shot from someone, you know, left side of goal, um, potentially even on their weaker foot than than he has against the Jamie Vardy penalty. So, um, yeah, just I don't know. There's there's a lack of leadership in that defence for sure, and, and there has been since Company left. I mean, I know a lot of people might say, well, Company didn't play every game, obviously, because he had his injuries, and and that's true. But he still kind of felt that there was even maybe when he wasn't on the pitch, that there was that kind of leadership was still there, you know, from, from the dressing room and from the bench. And you just haven't seen that since. You know, it was the same last season. Obviously, Laporte was out. Uh, and maybe it'll be a different story. You know, I, I do think that when Laporte's back in the side, you know, and when Diaz comes in as well, those two as a centre-back pairing with Fernandinho playing the majority of games in defensive midfield, then... You know, they shouldn't have problems like that at the weekend. But, you know, this season, we're going to see a lot more injuries. We know that for sure. Uh, we're already seeing it. You know, there's pretty much seems to be someone go, going down injured for every team every weekend. Um, so the chances of them getting through the season with no major injuries to Laporte, Fernandinho, or even, you know, the new signing, Diaz, just seems very slim and I think you know it doesn't address the fact that they're not pressing high enough um, when they lose the ball high up the pitch so yeah lots to think about for Pep Yeah so obviously on the other side of Manchester United scraped a 3-2 win um, against Brighton obviously they're still lo- looking to do some business before the transfer window closes obviously Jaden Sancho is the big one or the main one that they're looking at at the moment um, obviously <clears throat> trying to progress with not too much success uh, they've had the £100 million bid um, turned down, which is obviously like a big statement from Dortmund that they they just aren't willing to sell this season. Obviously, there's, it's been quite a funny one because from an English player's perspective, when you've got United interest and the chance to move back to back to England and play in the Premier League, you think he'd push a bit more for it. Um, but obviously, they've, they've come out and said he's got a respiratory problem, um, which stopped him travelling for their last game. Um, yeah, they seem to be getting shot in the foot a bit here. What have, what have you made on that in terms of that whole move? Do you think it would have been a good move in the first place? And also, do you think Dortmund are right to hold out? Because obviously they've got the whole coronavirus crisis at the minute. They're talking about transfer fees maybe not being quite as much. You know, got some people arguing they're asking for too much in the current circumstances. Obviously, in a contract situation, they're in a good place. So they have got that bargaining point. You know, they're in under no real pressure to sell the players, putting no pressure on them to sell. What are you, what are you making of that? Yeah, I think there's a lot of different aspects to this. I think, first of all, I think this is just a, another classic case in recent years of of United's, you know, negotiation strategies just not being good enough. You know, who knows what, you know, Ed Woodward's approach is to these situations. But, you know, all summer at Dortmund were very clear that if they met the the number that they'd set, which I think was 108 million, um, then they could, you know, then they could negotiate with the player and, you know, that probably would have been it. But, you know, they they sort of tiptoed around the situation, didn't make an offer anywhere near that. You know, I think this the offer that they put in yesterday was, you know, the highest one they've put in so far, already past 
the deadline that Dortmund set them, you know, which was last last weeks ago. Um, and so you just kind of wonder from United's perspective why, you know, obviously, yeah, there's a coronavirus situation and we know that even, it, you know, even the rich clubs are affected by it. But you think, well, if you've got 100 million or 90 odd million, whatever it is, to still put a bid in for him now, and yet two weeks ago you spent 40 odd million on Donny van der Beek. So you had, you know, you're saying that you had basically 130, 140 million still to play with. I still don't think that United needed van der Beek. I think that was a poor sign in from them, considering the midfield options that they've already got especially when you you know they're in a greater need of a forward for the right hand side of the pitch and probably even a defender as well ahead of a midfielder so for them to have that money available but to basically be saying well we're not going to pay that much money for Sancho on on principle I presume they don't want to pay that much money for a you know for a young forward but I don't understand why not. You know, it's been made. It's quite clear that that right side of attack is where you know they just don't add on to naturally play there. Yes, they've got plenty of talented players that can play there, and I think you know they've done that to you know in some games that works for them, in some games it doesn't. But you know, there's talk of Dan James potentially even going out on loan. So they've obviously you know they've decided he's not good enough. You know, um, at the moment at least. And yeah, you know, bringing an English player back to the Premier League I don't know why they haven't just put the money up put the money where their mouth is um, from Sancho's perspective I'm not so sure it is a good move for him right now I mean he could go to Man United who are struggling even at the start of this season despite you know much higher expectations than last season and yet you know they they might not get in the top four like that's easily feasible I think with the way that Leicester have started the season you know they've kind of reminded everyone look we're still here you know we can beat Man City you know we're going to give it a good go to get in the top four again you know you've got obviously Liverpool and Man City who are almost dead certain for the top four and um, so United are definitely not guaranteed anything here and yet at Borussia Dortmund Sancho probably is near enough guaranteed Champions League football with Dortmund um, so although yeah there's the the appeal of the Premier League at this stage in his career he, he also wants to be playing in the Champions League as well and maybe he's thinking well you know I'm sure he would go if the right was made but I don't think he's going to force it through um, and I don't think he should either um, but for me this is just a classic case for United you know not not sorting their, their own business out and then there's this talk about was Mane Dembele from Barcelona as well, which I'm, I mean, considering how ineffective he's been as a Barcelona player so far, you wonder why United would be so keen to sign him. But yeah, what, what have you made of the situation? Do you think it's you know negligence on United's part, or or is there more to it than that? I think like <clears throat> we still talk about United in the, the United days of, of Fergie and that and that that, that appeal that he like the club have to players, and obviously it's been you, you can mention them in the same kind of breath as Liverpool of old, really. But like Liverpool have always been a, a massive club, but they struggled to sign players for years because when they dropped off, when they had when they 
struggle. I, I refer to the Roy Hodgson days because I feel like that's the peak of the the point. I mean, you, some of the players that we signed, like Stuart Downing, and you know, players of that sort of caliber. Not to mock him, top player, but not a, a Liverpool standard of play. You know, they struggled to sign players because they weren't consistently qualifying for the Champions League, or you know, they they weren't consistently challenging for titles and seriously challenging and you're not doing that same boat you know they can't just expect that yeah probably Jaden Sancho of course would probably love to play for a top English club and return to England or whatever but they haven't got that appeal at the minute he's, I, I'm not surprised that he's not forcing it through because he's a player with incredible talent in the team that lets young talent thrive he knows that there's not going to be some big money superstar signer that's going to come and knock him out of the way he's satisfied he's surrounded by more young players you've got Haaland you've got Jude Bellingham obviously he's come from Birmingham City who's at the minute is not really going to be much known to a lot of people but already there's already signs of him making an immediate impact in the Bundesliga as well he's in a, he's in a, in a great team where he knows he's going to get opportunities okay you know there's probably question marks are they still too big of a gap between Bayern just in terms of their consistency obviously they've got that quality but he is going to get Champions League football and he knows he can buy his time that you know he can have another season there he's quite clearly happy there you know he's in no rush to move and if he has another great season you don't know what opportunities he opens up again because obviously he's been at Manchester City before as a youngster who's to say that they don't come back and go in for him obviously there's been other clubs Liverpool have been vaguely linked with him I think it's just kind of one of those cases when you're a top top player you get linked with all the big name clubs obviously you don't know how serious a link that is but yeah, um, I don't think it'd be the best move for him. It'd be a great move for Man United, I think. Um, it's obviously a lot of money, but considering his quality and considering the transfer fees these days, I don't think it's that big amount of money. And I think, to be honest, if they had any respect for the level of talent, I think if you really want to sign that player, you go and do that. I don't really know what the stuff, obviously you've already mentioned about kind of the way they deal with transfers and stuff. Um, and obviously they've only got till Monday to complete that. Monday, I think it is, the 5th. Um, to complete that um, and then there's I know there's been talk about they could turn their attentions to Ismail Saar at Watford um, if they don't get that deal for Sancho done by the 5th because the EFL deal that where clubs from the Premier League can do deals with football league teams uh, that's extended to the 16th so they've still got a chance to do deals but obviously they can't they can't do Premier League to Premier League or foot coming from outside of Europe that going either way um, but you're talking about two different qualities of player there. Like you got, a, they've got a player who was part of a team that got relegated to the championship, and you've got a player who is playing Champions League football, who's still very young. He's consistently doing well at Dortmund. I I don't get why you'd be willing to pay. I think it was about a forty million pound signing, which is obviously significantly less than what they'd be paying for Sancho. But is this some United team that want to go back to the similar days of like, oh, they're never going to repeat the feats of what they did with Fergie, I don't believe. You know, not, not with that consistency. But if they want to win Premier League titles and they want to be competing right into the deep end of the Champions League, as opposed to, you know, going having to basically fight out for the FA Cup and League Cup, they need to show that ambition. It just seems to stink of a lack of ambition if you're not going to be authoritative about it and go out and snap him up because you don't know in a year's time who's going to just come in and just pay the big money for them so for me if you know it really care about signing Sancho they just they just get it done and I don't know whether with five days left to go as we're recording this whether they're going to do something to step that up or maybe whether there'll be a spanner in the works and Sancho turns around and decides he wants to but like I said I, I 
I just don't see it right now. He's in a very good position. And why would he need to go to a team that actually, yeah, they've finished strongly towards the last part of the campaign. Obviously, Bruno Fernandes has really helped that. Like, I think he's a very significant player for them. But right now, you know, when you when he's looking at the weekend result, particularly, and they've got he's got a team coming in for him who had to struggle to a three-two uh, win against Brighton, which no disrespect to them because they're a top team, but. A club like United should be struggling to that. And I just think, you know, for now, Sancho would be better off staying put. Yeah, so in other news, obviously, we've just mentioned Sancho potentially going to Manchester United. Uh, another English player who's actually completed a move, that's uh, Ross Barkley on loan to Aston Villa. Um, obviously, he signed from Everton originally when he joined Chelsea. And obviously, Lampard's made a lot of signings this summer uh, around the £200 million mark. So it's kind of, pushed him out and shows where his priorities lay. Um, I don't know whether this is a move that will lead to a permanent deal should Villa stay up this season, but um, who, do you, who do you think this is better for? Do you think this is better for Ross Barkley or better for Aston Villa? I think this is definitely better for Aston Villa. Although Barkley, I guess he'll get a lot more game time, won't he? Um, so, you know, you could argue as a player who's going to want to get himself into the England squad next summer, um, you know, obviously, that, I think that's that's how a lot of players have got to think. You know, the year before a tournament is, you know, I need to play regularly in order to be considered for, you know, call up. And he's obviously looked at the situation at Chelsea and thought, okay, well, you know, uh, a move to Aston Villa is quite a big drop down the league table in terms of obviously prestige at the moment. But at the same time, yeah, he'll, you know, he should play there week in week out um, you know and could could strike up quite a good partnership with Grealish potentially um, for me I've never been a huge fan of Ross Barkley I think the hype is a little bit too much when it comes to him um, he shows flashes of you know of brilliance but they're very few and far between for me um, and yeah I think going back to when Chelsea signed him, 50 million, I think it was at the time. I, I couldn't believe it. Um, I don't think he was worth 50 million at the time. He certainly isn't worth 50 million now. Um, so a loan move for Aston Villa is it's perfect for Aston Villa. You know, they've they've got a player in, you know, they're obviously going to be up against it still this season, probably in terms of the relegation battle. You know, they're, they're obviously not out of the woods. And you know, they've got another player to open up defences. Um, and, you know, he'll probably will be able to shine more in an Aston Villa team than he can in a Chelsea team. But I just think, you know, Chelsea have got better players now. So I have uh, two basically players, you know, that similar number 10 role. You've already got Mason Mount in there who, who plays a similar role as well. And, you know, he, he, sometimes last season he played a little bit deeper in the midfield, but he clearly prefers um, Kovacic for that role. Um, who's maybe a bit more industrious um, up and down the pitch. So I think it's a great move for Aston Villa. I think Barclay's career probably needed it if he ever is going to reach the you know the levels that were expected of him. Um, but yeah, uh, I maybe this is a little bit below where his his level might eventually end up being. Um, but at least he can hopefully for his sake guarantee that he gets in the team every week and he can try and force his way into that England squad how do you see it 
Yeah, well, I was going to say, I wonder whether you're obviously saying we've seen flashes of brilliance. Obviously, Chelsea are a big club. I think with any big clubs, it's kind of you need to hit the ground running. Otherwise, you're up against it, particularly somewhere like Chelsea, where the owner invests a lot of money, expects a lot of immediate results. Um, Obviously, if he's only showing flashes of brilliance, then he needs to obviously change that and make sure he's doing it consistently obviously he's not going to have that pressure going to Aston Villa so if he even if it starts out as being games where he shows what he can really capable of in some games he knows he's going to get that game time um, because he hasn't got that competition for places so he will get that game time and it might be an opportunity for him to flourish in a in a weaker side and stand out more and he might build his confidence and you know go on to fulfill his potential make that do that consistently obviously if you're not going to get those opportunities regularly without performing immediately in the first place then he is going to struggle at Chelsea so it could it could come back in and work in his favour um, I, I, I still don't know whether that will result in him going back to Chelsea and becoming a key Chelsea player I, I, I can't see it now particularly with all the money they spend it's, it's too easy to just you know let him go and just spend even more money somewhere else. You know, they are a club that can do that. But I definitely feel like if he does well at Villa and he can find some consistency in his performances, I feel like he could definitely get opportunities somewhere else. So like, you know, you look at some outside of the top six, you know, there's like, like your Leicester's, well, Leicester are up, obviously up there, but a Leicester, Wolves, anyone, you know, kind of Everton. I mean, would you, would you ever see an Ever- Everton going back for him considering they sold in first place and they were so reluctant to sell? be surprised. I mean, you know, they've they've obviously, you know, they've, they've bought well this summer. Um, you know, James is obviously not, not the youngest player in the world, but, you know, maybe... Maybe there's too many similarities there. I don't know. I can't see him going back to Everton, even if Everton do kind of become a, a side that, you know, push into the Europa League spots. Um, but I agree. He's, it, it'll probably do all right at Aston Villa, or you, you would hope so. And then maybe next season can, can find a place in a team. Um maybe that's a bit more nearer the mid-table and kind of pushing for a Europa League spot. I don't see him going back to Chelsea. Uh, I think it's pretty clear there's no future for him there. Um, I just don't think he's good enough ultimately. It's not really even about the competition. Um, and so, yeah, maybe a, you know, maybe even a team like Spurs, you know, uh, you know, he could, he could end up somewhere like that. Um but yeah, it's a good move for, for all concerned, I'd say. Right, so um, on to our debate topic for the week, which is, um, do we need to change the way the handball law is applied in English football? Obviously, on Saturday... Uh, Eric Dyer was incredibly unfortunate. Well, a lot of people are saying incredibly, incredibly unfortunate to uh, concede a penalty in the dying moments against Newcastle. Um, I personally have actually got a bit of a standout opinion on this one, where I actually I agreed with the penalty decision, 
based on the current law of the game, which is, you know, if your hand is in a natural position, then it's a penalty. Obviously, the whole argument was that how could he be conscious that where the ball was as he was jumping up for the ball? And obviously, you need to move your arms to have the momentum of the jump. For me, it looked like he was waving down a taxi. I just couldn't see at any point why his hand needed to be in that position. Um, Obviously, you, you... you've got to jump and your arms are going to be up by your side and he didn't know it was there but you know based on the current laws of the game um, his hand was in an unnatural position and the ball did strike his arm for, for me it was a penalty but for me it was also incredibly harsh It, but it was right in the decision so I know it won't go down very well with Spurs fans but yeah I guess the, like I say the, what, what do you view on that um, do you think the way we interpret that or the way FIFA and UEFA want us to interpret that law, do you think that needs to change? Yeah, ultimately, I guess that has to be the solution here. I mean, yeah, like you say, that the referee has applied the rule, you know, to the letter in that game, and that's why it's been given as a penalty. And therefore, you know, you can't, based on the current rules, you can't really say that, you know, it shouldn't have been a penalty because... It is, you know, as as you've said, like under the under the current rules. But obviously, the rules are quite ridiculous in that respect. In that, you know, yes, you do need to gain momentum to to jump. You know, you can't just obviously have your arms behind your back or by your side. You know, I don't think no matter what you do in terms of the wording of where your hand should be, it's you know, it's not human instinct when you're playing you know, a game in one of the most competitive football leagues in the world, you know, at the highest level in the sort of, you know, last minutes of the game, it's not going to be front of mind to think, well, according to the rule book, I must have my arms, you know, perfectly in a position where, you know, they, you know, they're not considered an unnatural position, which in itself um, is open for interpretation in my opinion. Um, you know, define unnatural when you're when you're jumping. You know, it's. Um, I, I do agree. His arm was a bit kind of flailing. It did kind of look like he was hailing down a taxi. But ultimately, the rule is just ridiculous. And I don't really understand why we've had to get to this point for handballs. It feels like we change it like every year or every two years at the moment. Um, in my mind, handball should just you know for the most part go back to what it was a couple of years ago, which was a case of if the ball hits your hands, you know, from, from further than, you know, a metre or a couple of yards away or whatever the rule was at the time, then, you know, then that's handball. But if if, if the ball is too close to you when it's struck and, you know, it's pretty clear that you, you wouldn't have been able to do anything about it, then it's not handball. But I get that, you know, there was problems with that in terms of, you know, how do you define how far away someone needs to be to decide whether they can move the hand out of the way or, you know, there's this whole thing about, you know, whether a hand's in its natural position or not. You know, even if you put your arms behind your back, you know, it can still strike your arm on the way through, um, you know, if the ball's just going straight past you. So it's it's difficult one. I get that, like, it's hard for them to get it right, but at the moment it just, it's causing chaos and that doesn't seem, it doesn't seem necessary. I don't feel like we used to have this many problems about handball. I guess the, the old decisions 
including handball, are just under a microscope because of VAR. You know, and I guess that also becomes part of this conversation where a lot of these calls would have just been missed a few years ago. You know, if the if the linesman didn't see it, the referee didn't see it. Doesn't matter how many replays you know the commentators get to see or the people at home get to see. Um, it wouldn't matter. Whereas now, you know, everything's scrutinised. So you have to, I guess, in a way, FIFA probably feel like they need to have these like really specific laws because otherwise the referees are kind of just using their own judgment. But I think I think referees should use their own judgment. That would also separate the good referees from the bad, um, rather than trying to create this rule book that's so perfect that there doesn't actually need to be any room for interpretation because it's just it's yes or no, it's black or white. And I think that, you know, it's it's a professional sport. You know, at the end of the day, there's going to be certain situations that aren't that simple, in my opinion. Yeah, so for me, I'm I'm a bit the, I'm completely the other way. I'm a, I am a bit robotic in the sense that it is black or white. I feel like it all comes back to the VAR thing as well. You know, people are hating on VAR, particularly when you're on the wrong end of a decision. And there's arguments about sometimes the image quality on VAR isn't strong enough to be able to decide whether someone's on and offside or not, whether it's by like millimeters or not. Um, obviously technology develops all the time. So for me, that's not really an argument. But I feel like this kind of whole handball thing kind of stems back from the whole VAR debate. I feel like it's just the ongoing debate and topic at the moment in football. Obviously, it's a it's a big change of football globally or particularly at the top levels of the games in countries worldwide. And it is taking a lot of getting used to and obviously naturally when you've got changes, people don't like change. Um, so it does change a lot of things. Um, and, it, you know, we've got to kind of, I guess, accept we go to the times. Because for me, there's obviously incredible amounts of money in football. Um, can we really decide to let a referee interpret a decision where a different referee may have given a different decision that may have benefited what one team or another and then could ultimately decide whether they've won the Champions League or whether they've won the Premier League and then subsequently how much money they've got to spend for the following season on transfers and all the other things that the, the consequences of winning comes with that and also that ability to track players could I mean and it, it sounds far-fetched to say it but it could come down to that if you go and win the Champions League and you've done that and it and it's come down to a key decision like a handball or an offside that attract that changes like the players you can attract you know you've seen it like once liverpool won the champions league i i thought the biggest thing the greatest thing about that was the caliber of player all of a sudden we could attract now klopp's not obviously a manager that pushes for like endless amounts of signings but all of a sudden I knew we could attract them sort of players so it's obviously them, all them knock on effects of these decisions obviously on a regular everyday game like for Spurs Newcastle you know it's a case of yeah realistically that was two points missed for Spurs but obviously there's games in different tournaments or different stages of season you, you never know actually that could come back to make a, a defining decision for Spurs if Spurs have a good season and they maybe miss out by a point or two they might come back and look at that and obviously that could have a knock-on effect. But I think like the main thing here, the main issue, I guess, is not like how interpreted like how many penalties are projected for the rest of the season to be given away is 88. And it just seems ridiculous. So for me, where VAR's concerned, why don't we take 
the way we've interpreted penalties before in the past three, four seasons ago, or you know, not even not even that long ago, obviously. Um, and why don't we imply it in the same way? But if we're, we're unsure of decision, let it go to VAR. Obviously, there's the argument that if you play it to VAR, you can slow it down, and when you slow it down, things look worse. But at least that way, you're applying handball in a way that we've all been accepting of. But if we there's that opportunity that if the referee does initially get it wrong, he can go back and check it, as opposed to applying this ludicrous rule where you're essentially being cost games by a fluke or a bit of luck. I guess if you're not applying VAR in the, in the way that they do now, though, that there's going to be people who are saying that it's unfair because it's you know, it has to it has to look at every decision essentially, otherwise. You know, it can't just kind of let some go and be decided by the referee because then you're, yeah, I guess you're almost relying on two different sources, neither of which might be reliable in, in a way. Um, it's difficult. I think I agree with you in the sense that, I guess, to make the game the fairest, um, I guess, way to be played is yes to have VAR and to, to scrutinise every decision and, and to have black and white rules for handball and offside. Um, you know, but I don't think sport really works like that. It's like, or, you know, it's like fouls. Or like, what about just like, you know, a heavy, heavy tackle, you know? Um, what constitutes, you know, it's not a non-contact sport. So, you know, sometimes a player might get a touch of the ball, but have gone, you know, gone in a little bit too rash, and the referee will give it as a penalty or a free kick anyway. Um, you know, and there's no, again, there's no black and white situation there. It's, it's interpretation of the referee. Same with whether they get sent off or not. A lot of the time, you know, we we keep seeing these VAR checks for, you know, checking for serious foul play, uh, which obviously we never had before. It was just, you know, the referee had to make a decision. Maybe the linesman had helped them out, and that was it. Um, but I, yeah, I, I think it does come down a little bit to like if we want VAR to exist in football and make these decisions for us, or at least you know get more of the right. I think like there is a there is a massive positive to the fact that a lot more decisions have been made correctly since we've introduced it. Obviously, there's been a lot of questionable decisions, especially last season as well. And you know these systems are bound to have some teething problems. But do we yeah do we want to be having like close to a hundred penalties? in the Premier League, you know, um, or whatever it is, you know, for me, that's, there's too many, like even, you know, you don't want there to be too many penalties in the game because it obviously favours the attacker, you know, I know some people might argue against that, but, you know, penalties, you know, it's a free shot on target at the end of the day, if you, you know, if you hit the target and it's, it's so easy to score compared to, you know, when it comes down to a situation where, like, a ball's crossed into the box and it, you know, hits a player's arm unknowingly and then that results in just a, you know, that, that cross could have been going absolutely nowhere but then all of a sudden it's penalty and, you know, goals change, goals change games and, you know, penalties change games, you know, arguably more so because, it, you know, it can rile up the other team quite a lot, especially when VAR gets involved. So, I don't think we want to be seeing like a penalty in every game or every couple of games, you know, uh, or more than one penalty in the game rather. For me, that 
starts to ruin it. Um, yeah, uh, it'll, it'll, for me, it become a bit too much like other sports, um, you know, where you, you have a lot more kind of penalty calls and a lot more fouls, which are just then, you know, almost becomes part of your tactics. Um, you know, there was talk actually last week or even at the weekend about, you know, the players are almost like aiming just towards the hands now because, you know, so, you know, unless it's like the perfect position, so to speak, they can quite easily get a penalty. Um, so, you know, just whack it out and hope for the best, you know, hope it is around. And I think like in certain situations, though, like, you know, these footballers are absolutely outstanding at putting the ball where they want to put it. They can easily flick it up into, you know, if they can flick it through someone's legs, there's no reason why they can't just flick it up on someone's arm. If it's in an unnatural position, they just purposely win themselves a penalty. Oh, that seems crazy. And you might, you know, some people might be like, well, why would, you know, that doesn't seem, you know, very good like sportsmanlike and players wouldn't do that. But of course it would. Like, they're there to win the game. Um, I don't know. They just need to be a bit careful with these rules. But for me, this one needs changing to some degree, um, at least just that interpretation of what is what is an unnatural position for the arms. Like, it does need to be taken into account that a player has to jump up. And if they've got absolutely no sight of the ball, it's difficult that one because you can't just say that that's not a penalty because obviously the ball could be going in the back of the net and hitting someone's arm who's not looking and then that's obviously has to be a penalty because otherwise they'd have scored. So it's a tough one. But yeah, I think change the rule a bit but also we just need to start applying a different level of logic to VAR um, and really figure out like, what, what we actually want to achieve from it. And if that is going to be uh, more fouls, more penalties, things like that, then fair enough. But I think that you'll then start to see the whole game of football change tactically in a way um, to try and take advantage of that. And I think that would be a negative for football. Right, so uh, another weekend of action coming up. Obviously, we had a uh, had a lot of goals so far. So I thought it'd be good to like pick out a game each that stood out for you for this weekend. Um, what what game are you going for? I'm going to go for Spurs versus United. Um, obviously, since last season, this has obviously been quite a good one story wise. So you've got Mourinho at Spurs, um, having having been sacked by United. Um, you know, not that long ago. And not only that, but Spurs have probably had a better start to the season than I was, than I was originally expecting. Um, obviously, just a, a week and a half since that, that game against Southampton. Um, and United have had a particularly poor start to the season. I think, you know, it's fair to say, I mean, although, you know, they did manage to get the win at the weekends, I think we can all agree that they were, they were incredibly lucky there, really, with some of the decisions and, and the way that that game went and, you know, probably should have lost. Um, I didn't predict Spurs to have a good season. I think they've somewhat surprised me a little bit, uh, you know, in, in a positive way so far. Obviously, it looks like Mourinho is committing to his three-back system as well, which obviously could be quite difficult for, for United's front line to, to get through. Um, you know, and maybe... Maybe we'll see Gareth Bale. I'm not sure if there's been any update on that yet, whether he's fit enough to play. Um, but you know that that could be interesting as well because obviously there was a lot of talk about United being interested in 
in Bale before um, before he went back to Spurs from Madrid. So, yeah, I think that one could be a good game. I'm not going to call which way it's going to go. Uh, I'm just going to just going to enjoy it. Uh, but yeah, I think I think we could be in for a, a few goals actually there. Uh, I think it could get quite feisty. With five days remaining of the transfer window, we wait to see what deals clubs will do to bolster their squads ahead of an intense fixture schedule in the 2020-2021 season. But ahead of deadline day, Leeds host Manchester City look out for free-scoring Leicester and West Ham, while Jose Mourinho returns to Old Trafford as Manchester United host Tottenham. Catch you again next week.